When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another edition of the Bandwagon Podcast, and today is genuinely one of my, um, a guest who I've been really looking forward to for a very long time. Uh, one um, within the drug and alcohol field, uh, well, the substance misuse field, um, you, you get to know uh, people's stories and you'll get to know, you know, people who are influenced and can, and are the, those kind of king makers rather than being kings. And this guy, um, the, my guest today, um, he, he's responsible and um, for some of the biggest campaigns that we're going to try and make within this within this field. Um, but we'll get to that later on. Um, but he was he infiltrated some of the Br- uh, Britain's most dangerous and violent gangs as a, an undercover police officer um, in the early 90s. Um, and today, uh, Neil Woods joins us to kind of uh, uh, have a discussion of his uh, and his career. Let's say, put it that way. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks, Neil, for for coming on board. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, cheers, Neil. I just want to kind of go back into your. I, I, I've um, over the time when we've been having our chats, I've I've looked at quite a lot of interviews uh, that that you've given, and you know looked at the kind of structure in terms of what 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 your life is and it and it is very much I, I had an experience I used to work within the police at some point and I could kind of relate to some of those um you know some of those points that you that you end up at can you just tell us a little bit of how what Neil Woods was like as a as a as a young young guy going into um to the police in, you know in the early 90s Oh, well, when I started in the police, um, I, I was terrible at the job, to be honest. I, I was a I was a dreadful uniform police officer. Uh, I, I went into it very young. I was a young 19-year-old, but I didn't really realise how young I was until I was actually in the police. <laughs> uh, because, it, you know, I suddenly found I was actually quite naive and sheltered. And I just didn't, I didn't deal with confrontation very well, and I wasn't very good at it at all. So um, I clung on to the job for the first couple of years, really, you know, one step away from being sacked for a couple of years <laughs> so so it wasn't a natural fit for me really um and then sort of four years into the job I got um bizarre opportunity to start working on undercover uh and I suppose I found my niche then really and what was the in terms of the the, the police atmosphere in the early 90s was obviously 
significantly different. I know that they were having a lot of recruitment issues because of the political atmosphere at that time. Was that something that you experienced because of your own upbringing, that there was a kind of clash in culture or what was the atmosphere like? Was I, I remember working in the police and it was very cliquey and I was almost seen as a little bit of an outsider because I felt because of my background and um, just because of my sheer age, I was a really young guy coming into it. I, I just thought that I couldn't break down those barriers. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends where you work and it's like any job, it's the look of the draw of who you work with. But like any profession can be clicky, but police can be a very hostile environment if 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 there is a click there. You know, the can, canteen culture can be cruel. Um, and from my point of view, once I developed a reputation of being, shall, shall I say it, not the best with with confrontation then suddenly I, i've developed a reputation of someone who couldn't be relied on you know could i would i back people up adequately and all of this kind of thing and then that becomes a culture that you could you could consider bullying as well and anyone who's seen as different or not fitting the mold you know it can be a very very harsh environment indeed now that got better over time it did um, and I know that some places are better than others, but yeah, the, the police is is perhaps more susceptible than any other profession in civil in civil profession in that environment and how harsh it can be um, and how clicky, as you say, you know, clicky is the word as well. Mm. And so you, you 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 mentioned that you had some unique opportunity. How did that opportunity come about? Because in those early nights, the the crack kind of narrative has started to come over from the states and was it starting to dominate the area where you were where you were working well i mean the, the whole nation had been whipped up into this frenzy of of, of moral panic at the time because as you say the, the the stories of the crack epidemic in the united states was tabloid fodder in mm. this country you know the tabloids are running stories about communities in america with an emphasis on black communities in america you know you'd have almost the weekly Sunday Mail story about how it was destroying black communities in America. Um, and so the public were whipped up into this frenzy of fear. So the moment we actually got any crack cocaine, suddenly the public are, on, you know, absolutely up in arms and, and insisting the government does something about it. So it's that political feedback, you know, that political journalistic feedback where the problem is actually created by the fear that's generated by the rhetoric. And so that's what happened. So what the, the, the Home Office instructed every police uh, force in the country to make drugs the priority, number one priority, over anything else, um, with a particular emphasis on heroin and crack cocaine. So there was investment in drugs policing. Uh, and that's why I got an attachment to the drug squad, because they were wanting to sort of share the expertise of the drug squad detectives amongst some of the younger cops, uh, which the drug, the drug squad hated it. To be honest, they hated having us rookies underfoot. We didn't know what we were doing. But then one of them said to me, Oh, do you fancy having to go and buy some crack? And I thought, Well, that's not a question I was expecting. But, you know, <laughs> Fair I'll, point. I'll, I'll have a go. And it was it was so basic. You know, I was given, I think there was an obs point around the corner of, of someone with a camera, but I was basically sent to this blue terrace door in the city of Derby with 20 quid in my pocket. Uh, and knocked on this door and asked this guy if I could buy a 20 stone of crack cocaine um, with little more preparation than that, really. 
uh, which which is a bit ludicrous, especially when he asked the door, answered the door, and he says, "Who are you?" And I'm thinking, "Oh God, I've no idea who I am. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I prepared that much." And he says, "You're not a fucking student, are you?" I thought, because because I hate students, mm. and I thought that'll do. Yeah, I'm a student, and he obviously thought I was incredibly stupid announcing myself to be a student when he just told him they hated students. Then he just laughed and dealt dealt me my, my my crack, and so I went back to the drug squad with my little 20 pound stone of crack cocaine. And, and, and that actually defined that they defined the next 14 years of my life because suddenly the drug squad are thinking, wow, this is a cheap and easy way of getting results. And it, of course it became less easy straight away because he got, he went to prison and suddenly everyone knew that the police had a new trick in town. And so it got more and more difficult and a few days operations turned into a few weeks. And in no time at all, I was doing no less than, six or seven months in any location. And then I was loaned, loaned out to different drug squads around, around the country. And then eventually there was a special operations unit set up just to cater for that kind of, that kind of work. So when you, when you started it and when you were getting that preparation, they gave you the OBS one. What kind of safety did they have preparation for yourself? Uh, and 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 the element of trying to I know you're smiling now already but um, you know the 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 kind of idea of getting you ready to kind of blend in well they didn't but they left they left it to me I had no training no idea at all and, and the safety was wasn't even mentioned at all <laughs> it's just it was so seat of your pants I mean obviously late as time went on it got more professional and uh, I, I helped develop four years later I helped develop the training for other cops um you did doing my best to use my experience for that but no there was there was no sense of, of safety at all but having said that i think it's really important to note that i didn't feel massively at risk on that particular on that first occasion and that the level of threat in that market wasn't what it became it, it was it was fairly easy really mm. it was only when um organized crime found out that police operatives were doing this that it suddenly became more dangerous for everybody the violence was in response to my presence in that marketplace it wasn't necessarily there beforehand i mean obviously you know there's violence in an illicit market because people can't turn to the police for help so they deal with things with violence and yes of course there is competition between organized crime and that plays out in violent ways but i must emphasize that that market became significantly more violent as a result of policing activity, as a result of me, essentially. So, th so this, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's something to put in your CV anyway, Neil. So, um, you know, so it, in terms of starting that whole kind of wave into this kind of field, and then uh, I suppose what you're getting then is the the level of anti on both sides is, is increases, isn't it? So like, you know, the, your, the operations are getting more and more elaborate. The, the kind of the punishments of people getting caught from the drug guns are, escalating more and more and then you get to this real kind of flashpoints of where you're seeing out and out kind of um gang warfare in some in some aspects in, in, you know in a in, in in smaller cities yeah exactly that this this war on drugs that people call it a war well yeah it's a war on people but it's also more accurately described as an arms race it's a perpetual arms race with no chance of peace because the law drug because the laws stay the same and uh you know, cops are really good at catching drug dealers, but we never reduce the size of the market, not for a moment, but we do change the shape of it. And over that time, over time, that changing shape is more and more violent. 
so over time from when you started out on your first operation to sort of when you left the force what would you say were the significant bits that in the game that actually changed itself what changed in that market over time yeah uh, well it became more organized organized crime developed into a much more efficient machine it came, became more corporate uh, so I, I worked undercover between 93 and beginning of 2007. And in that time, I saw organised crime become much more efficient. And of course, the reason for that is drugs policing sharpens the sword of organised crime. It never shrinks the market, so it just becomes more efficient. And one way that we do that is that we create monopolies and cooperatives. So, for example, if if... If um, if police catch a, a, um, a heroin dealer who is, or a, or a or a drug dealing gang or a kingpin character, which say controls a quarter of the of Birmingham, say for example, then the dealer or kingpin kingpin character or gang, which is most able to take up that opportunity that the police create, is somebody who controls another quarter of Birmingham. So they're able to expand the amount of their business, or how much of area that they control as a result of that police activity. What that means is that they're, they have, they're suddenly richer. They have more disposable income because they control more of the market. If they can do that, then they can uh, corrupt more effectively because they become a monopoly. They can, they can invest their excess money into corruption. They can corrupt the police. They can corrupt the criminal justice system because they now have the money to do it. And what gangster doesn't want to use corruption to make himself safer or herself safer? But they, it also means that they become much more efficient and it means they have the resources to become more violent and intimidate other people. And so they grow their monopolies or they come to an agreement, which is a cooperative, so they work much more efficiently. And all of this restructuring the market is as a result of police activities trying to deal with drugs with our current laws. So taking it back from, you know, we, we kind of mentioned the, the bit of the end game just there now, but when you went back from your first operation when you in Derby, when you came out, um, were you almost treated like a celeb with this new, <laughs> with this new kind of tactic? Did it kind of elevate you to a different kind of officer that, you know, that you, that people were interpreting you as? as? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it was interesting for me because I was still trying to find my feet. I was getting over the fact that I was I was just about managing to function OK as a reasonable cop. But, uh, you know, it took me a lot longer than my colleagues to do that. So I was just about finding my feet. And suddenly I, I found myself ended up because after a few operations, you know, I realized I was actually pretty good at this. Mm. And as a young man that, you know, it really suits your ego to suddenly be good at stuff. and you know, I admired all of the covert policing people that I was suddenly mingling with now. You know, I looked up to these people. They were the kind of the hardworking detectives that I wanted to be. And suddenly I was being respected amongst these people as peers. And that, you know, that's an incredible ego boost as a young man. So I loved it for that reason. I loved it because I could feel myself developing as well. You know, we all like to feel like we're getting better at something, don't we? It's just in, inherent to human behavior and also i really 
began to enjoy the intellectual exercise of deceiving people. Now that sounds quite dark, mm-hmm. but but it but it's true. You know, I I it's a real test um, of mental strength to be able to maintain lies and to be aware of risk, manage those risks, and you're on your own. You know, you've no one to rely on. You've just got to react to what happens. And I found that an incredibly invigorating uh, experience. You know, it, it's such a rapid learning experience because you've got to almost learn on the fly, you know, develop on the fly. And so I, I enjoyed it for all of those, for all of those reasons. What were, like, you're preparing yourself in terms of for a, a role. I see it as almost kind of acting in some ways. And at, at some at some point, that's going to have a an offset. It's going to there's going to be a cost to your soul. The way that I kind of I can kind of express it because you're you're living in 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 this kind of way. Uh, you know, as you said, you're mastering the art of deception. How would you prepare yourself for you're going undercover? Was there a certain formula that you would do, or was there a, you know like a ritual or a, you know just a just just some sort of preparation? What what would you do? Well, an important part of it was just putting the right clothes on. You know, I would change into the right clothes, um, which varied over time. To start with, I, I <laughs> sort of um, I dressed up as a travelling scally. Now you're a, you're a Midlander, so you are. Yeah, but I'm I'm Hansworth, so like uh, I was, so I'm like B twenty one. So I I'll, I'll get to that story later on. So I know you know that area very well. But um, yeah, I'm, yes. uh, yeah, I'm probably yeah. A scally, it's like a <laughs> thief anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would dress up in my full trackie and my Nike Air Max trainers. You know, no disrespect to anyone into sportswear, but it just I wear, that now. <laughs> I wear oh, that now. At, at the time, it was the it was the on the streets. It was the uniform of thieves. <laughs> that that yeah. was you know, yeah. with the right you know with the right That's labels, and yeah. right labels. So you know that helped me a certain degree. You know, it helped me a bit. Um, making myself out to be a bit of a travelling car thief, you know, burglar, that kind of thing. But actually, eventually, what I realised opened the most doors for me is if I dressed down and portrayed myself as somebody who was really struggling. So I pitched myself at the the kind of street people who were living in squats or homeless or on the edge of that kind of existence, you know, the really most vulnerable people. And there was various reasons for that. Mostly, as they were using more drugs than anyone else, so I they had more connections, they had more people to introduce me to, but also they were easier to manipulate. And again, this sounds very dark uh, and ruthless, but that's because it is ruthless. Mm. I, I would pick on the most vulnerable people because they were the easiest people to manipulate. And that is the essence of undercover drugs policing, that that is the reality. Uh, but I would, I would do that you know, with all enthusiasm. Um, and, and I would learn from those people as much as possible and understand what they were going through and why they were why, where they were. And what I, now I look back and I refer to that as weaponizing empathy, because that's essentially what I was doing. You know, I was I was feeling, trying to understand what they were feeling and trying to feel what they were feeling. But I was doing it for the worst possible motives. But I, of course, I didn't see it in that way at the time. At the time, I saw it as the end justifying the means. Because I knew I was causing harm to these people. I knew I was causing potentially emotional harm to these people. 
But I saw the end justifying the means because I thought, well, I can cause harm to these people, but at the end of the operation, I'll be catching some bad men and they'll be going to jail. So it's worth it, surely. And that is actually how I justified my actions to myself when I had a transaction, a simple tra- a business transaction, like a, I need to do A is going to get me B with people C and that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I did have to wrestle with the ethics of this. I did on many occasions because I saw just how much some people needed help and how much I was exploiting them. And I had to wrestle with these ethics. And that's the, that's the thinking process I went through. I was, that's how I was reassuring myself that the end justified the means. Do you still have that wrestle, wrestling now? Oh, no, no. Um, now, now I understand uh, clearly that I was, that, that there was no benefit to the work that I did, like none at all. So I was merely causing harm and also causing harm to the communities because I never reduced crime and violent crime increased as a direct res- result of my actions. So there were no benefits, none at all. So I've had to reconcile the harm that I've caused. I've had to understand that and accept it. And of course, part of that reconciliation with myself is the fact that I'm now an activist, actually trying to, to, to improve society as best I can. So you, you you leave Derby and where, where did you get positioned um, next and what, what was that operation like? Oh God, I went all over the place. So when, when I, I did Leicester, uh, that Leicester was a fascinating operation because a lot of it was concentrated on high fields, very mm. interesting community high fields. Um, and that was quite, that was quite a dangerous one. What was that like then? Are you able to... Give us a little bit on that. Yeah, I mean, there was lots of lovely people there in Highfields that I got to know, but there were some really vicious drug dealers there as well. Um, there was one interesting one. It was the first time I'd come across a child dealing. Well, I say child, he was 16 anyway. Um, and when I met him, he was one of the nicer dealers. He was part of this gang. And he was a, he was a nice kid. I could have a laugh with him. He was quite good fun. You know, I could I'd joke with him. But over the space of the six-month operation, so six months later, he became a terrifying 17-year-old. He changed dramatically over the time that I met him and saw him. And by the end of it, he was being casually violent towards me. And that change happened because he was learning what he had to do to survive in that marketplace. And that's where I really learned that the reality of that marketplace is that the, 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 the dealers who are prepared to be the most violent in terms of reputation and actual violence are the ones who survive they don't get grassed up they don't get informed upon and they don't get caught the same and so this young man literally as he was coming into adulthood was changing his personality to fit into the environment that in which he found himself and was and he, he was, was he getting was it uh, was there somebody teaching him or was it yeah. just or was it all oh, right okay yeah, he was with a group of people and they were teaching him how to survive in that world. And so that casual violence came as a, as a result of that. And it's, it's one of the most tragic things that I've, that I've witnessed. Uh, that, and, and I witnessed it for the first time there. So um, 
obviously it was a more of a novelty a young man that at that age dealing then of course now it's now it's common now it's it's, it's the mainstream uh, there's 50,000 children in the UK dealing being exploited to deal like that now um but it was it was just beginning then really that that kind of that kind of age group um and when you and when you were in Leicester and you were doing that what was the particular operation that you managed to take them down on then well there was god there was loads i think there was in excess of 60 dealers taken down on that operation um it was it was a huge huge operation but at the, at the end of it there was um there was a particular dealer who I'd bought from right at the beginning of that operation. And he was quite a, a tasty gangster. He was quite of great interest to, to the, to the team. Um, and it was unusual for him to be hands-on as well, to actually deal face to face. So when I, but I hadn't got any video footage of him because you don't use a camera at the start of an operation because you, you know, might get searched. I hadn't got any corroborating evidence against him. And this is the right at the end of the operation. So they, so I, and he wasn't coming out to do any hands-on dealing because he was a step a step away from it. So I got him to come out by phoning him and offering him some counterfeit clothing, which I'd managed to get hold of, some counterfeit Stone Island jackets. And so he was interested in that. But he brought two of his mates with him who had never met. And so we arranged to meet in this car park, in quite a secluded car park, but it was also quite near to the inner ring road in, in Leicester. So, but but it was secluded. At the end of this car park, he arrived. He's looking at the jackets, and then he said to me, "Well, you just want to sell me these, or do you want to you want to buy anything?" So I said, "Well, if you carry him white, I'll have, I'll have a twenty stone of you." So he gets in the, it sits back in his car, and he has this massive block of crack cocaine, like bigger than a VHS tape size. And a lot of listeners might not remember VHS, but it's a big, big, massive, fat we black. Do. Of we do. Block. <laughs> Good idea. It was a big block of crack anyway, a lot of crack. And he's cutting this little slither off for me. <laughs> but while he's doing that, his mates start getting suspicious of me. And one of them pushes me up against this metal railing and starts searching my clothes. And he starts asking me questions. And how, how, long, how long have you known him? And I says, man, I've known him for months. Tell him how long I've known him for you. Anyway, he starts, you don't mind me swearing on you. No, 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 you go for it. Because <laughs> it's essential to the story, really. Yeah, of course you go for I it, yeah. start saying, he starts searching my clothes and he's picked, like, on feeling my clothes and suddenly finds the camera. Because this ain't, this ain't James Bond tech. This <laughs> is like, I think, I think this is 2001, something like that, and it, it wasn't camera, James Bond. Camera's still pretty big then, isn't it? I'm guessing. It was, well, it was drilled into a, a, metal, a metal button on a denim jacket. And once he found it, there's no doubt what's winking back up at you. No doubt at all. And there's a little lump behind it. And he says, fucking hell, man, he is as well. He's 5-0, man. He's 5-0. And I'm thinking, you're not old enough to have watched Hawaii 5-0, but, you know, street slang and all that. So he says, you're fucking 5-0, man. He's heat. And he starts shouting. So I'm thinking, at that point, now, this is one of the advantages I had working undercover, in that I, f I found that when I was in a dangerous position, and I had that surge of adrenaline, like we're all familiar with, in danger. Mm. What it did for me is that it made me feel like I had all the time in the universe. Time slows down. So I could think really clearly exactly what I wanted to do. 
So in a split second, I'm thinking, well, if I run now, they're going to catch me. I'm a long way from the exit. You don't run away from a pack of wolves. So I'm going to have to slow down his explanation of what he's found to his mate. So I'm going to have to interrupt him and stop him from speaking to give me time to slowly walk away and confuse him. So that's what I did. I started shouting at him. I said, you're picking at my fucking clothes. What are you doing? You're picking at my jacket. It's not even my jacket. It's Jackie's coat. I got it this morning. I'm just rambling all this abuse at him. Mm. And this great, this sort of six foot three big wall of muscles looking down at me, really confused because he hadn't, he, he did not expect me to be doing this. And he's starting to doubt himself now. So I'm slowly, so I slowly take the jacket, the Stone Island jacket off his mate, start folding it up really slowly and carefully, still keeping up this torrent of abuse. And I put it in the plastic bag and I'm starting to walk away slowly, still abusing this guy. And he's like, but, 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 you're, you got, you got to be heat, man. Anyway, so as I'm walking away, then he starts to try and convince his mate who's sat in the car, still cutting up the crack. And I can hear them arguing. And I can hear my mate, the one I knew, say, no, I've known him for months, man. He's safe, man. He's safe. So I'm still shouting abuse, but listening to what he's saying about. And then I just keep walking along the car park. Anyway, a few moments later, I hear running towards me behind. I'm thinking, oh, well, I got halfway across the car park. Maybe if I swing round, get a punch in, I can shock one long enough to, to then run. Mm. So I spin round and it's my mate, isn't it? It's the, it's the one who knows me. He says, don't mind my mate. He's a dickhead. <laughs> and I said, yeah, he is a dickhead. He is a dickhead. And he's been picking up my clothes and I don't know what he's on about. He says, anyway, don't you want this ting? And I'm thinking, you want to sell me crack now? So I'm thinking, all right. So I'll reach in my pocket. I get 20 quid out. And I do the exchange all in the middle of the camera. And in the, in the meantime, his mate is literally screaming at him from the car, shouting, man, I'm telling you, he's fucking 5-0. And so, but he's ignoring him. So anyway, I carry on walking and he carries him walking towards the car. Anyway, he must man have managed to convince him because then suddenly I hear the car revving and the engine spinning, or the wheels spinning, screeching. I'm thinking, right, now it's time to run. So I started running and I got to the exit of the car park and I start running along the pavement. Uh, and there's a busy dual carriageway here. Uh, and the dual carriageway very shortly come, came up to a, a roundabout. And where the road goes into the roundabout, there's a railing to protect the pavement, you know, metal railing. Mm. So I sprinted to that, and the car came out of the car park, and it's up the pavement, driving after me on the pavement. And I just managed to get to the point where the railing was, where the car couldn't fit, and the car screeched to a halt. And it, I looked, glanced behind, and I reckon it was no more than two metres behind me when it stopped. So I was that close to being to being run over. So then they bumped, they bumped them onto, like, onto the road, slowly went round the roundabout, sort of looking at me. And I, from where I was, then I could walk very quickly to a pedestrian area, so they couldn't drive after me. So I just, you know, made some motions, like looking at my down at my clothes, and they went round the roundabout again, obviously wondering what to do. And then I managed to get back to the safe location and, and de debrief with the team. I explained to them what had happened, gave them the number of the car and the description of the people, and the intel cop took those details, went out of the room for a few minutes, came back in laughing. Sis, I don't know why they didn't just shoot you. Sis, there's loads of intel about a gun in that car. <laughs> and we all had a laugh.
it's funny what you laugh at in a in a you know situation. <laughs> like gallows humor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, so did, um, did you did you ever get did you ever get um did you ever think of like ripping the camera off and throwing it away? Well, they'd found they'd found it. Yeah, yeah, fair it, point. No, there's no doubt. It's just a matter of whether I got away or not, really. And then obviously, then that operation has to be ended because you've been potentially compromised. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the thing is, it, it was at an end anyway. Mm. Um, the last thing that was needed for that job. But yeah, there's still there was still some incompetence from police that actually caused them to be suspicious and that. Um, there, there was some leaking of information for one reason or another from that, of, of that, I'm sure. And and it's a risk, you know, the, the role, one of the biggest, biggest risks in my role was either corruption or incompetence, I'm afraid. You know, I, I did work with lots of brilliant cops, I did. Uh, but also some that weren't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when I I was a drug worker, so I used to be going into the cells and helping a lot of the offenders sort of like, um, you know, if they're in there because of drug, drug or alcohol use that, you know, to try and get them into support, into treatment. And it, from my opinion, it was really, it did, it did really well, even if it stopped people offending for a while, they had an opportunity and intervention to get themselves in there. But sometimes some of the, 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 some of the, the colleagues at the time who I was working with, their knowledge in terms of putting, you know, just basic information was, was terrible because I remember at that time in um, the early 2000s, for example, probably when it was at, at, the, at its peak where social media started coming in and where some of the gangs were using so, um, comment section in YouTube to try and, you know, to kind of organise meets and, and do the and the police themselves were banned from actually going on there because it was computer policy. And I used to just laugh, laugh so much. And, you know, the intelli- they, they would have like, you know, predominantly where I was working, there was loads of Asians there and having Asian names. And I would just used to keep quiet. I just said, I'm not getting, I'm not getting involved. I just couldn't believe that the, the amount of stuff that was being missed, it was, it was horrific. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. But the thing is, I think you have to look at these things in the context of just how big the market is. Mm. And, you know, police were all, cops are already completely swamped. Uh, with more information than they know what to do with, more target dealers than they could possibly arrest in a hundred years, and, uh, and yeah, they do miss a lot. But um, that's only because they haven't got the capacity to even look at a lot of that stuff. Mm. You know, it, it the, the side, the scale of the issue, the scale of the problem is unfathomable, really, to most mm. of the public. I remember doing some training in like t- t- 2010. This is when the NPS market, the illegal high market came in. I was delivering training and then I was like, you know, there's people out there who buy these things um, and, and and buy drugs with it. And and then I used to say, yeah, this is what it's called, Bitcoin. And I used to like, I was, it was all on the dark web there and stuff. And I was like, I to this day, I kicked myself because I've still got that presentation. One day I'll be worth a fortune of where, you know, I had price markets for Bitcoin back at then, and you just the way that it evolved um, to go to go down that to, to go into those criminal markets is just unbelievable. And, and I always feel that that's why the drugs war would never be won in that way because you just you, you just cannot compete with the innovation that's happening. You know, they were only master something five years ago. It's already it's already moved on. Yeah, exactly. Organized crime will always be. Um, 
several steps ahead. They will, because as I, as I say, policing policing just sharpens the sword of them. It makes them more effective. Uh, and you know, we've created a monster, and that monster gets gets more dangerous every with every passing year. So, in in your um, in your experience, you've done Leicester now. Then I believe, did you go to Manchester and then Birmingham, or was there any, or was it you still kind of frequent it frequented up and down the country before you got into Birmingham? Um, I well, I didn't do Birmingham undercover. I did, but I did investigate Birmingham gangs yes. in, North, in Northampton. Yeah. Um, do you want you want me to give a bit of detail? Yeah, about please. It? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'd actually given up undercover work briefly before this job. Um, I was just finding it too much. I was finding it emotionally too taxing. Uh, but they persuaded me to do this job, and they they sold it to me like this. They said, "Woodsy, we need you to do this group, this this or this op, because this gang is even more dangerous than the last lot you've dealt with. They, this is a crew called the Burger Bar Boys." And so I looked at the intelligence of them and saw that just 12 months before they were involved in the murder of Letitia Shakespeare and Charmaine Harris. Um, one of the people, one of the targets for the operation was, in, was there was intelligence that he was involved in seven different murders in Birmingham. Um, and that, you know, they were a vicious group. And in Northampton, where they'd taken over the, the heroin and crack cocaine supply, effectively the whole market, uh, they were using gang rape as part of their reputation building is their as their intimidation it was it was it was quite obscene so that's why i went back into it really i thought well I've, you know i've got to do something there was two operatives that already tried to get close to them and, and not managed it so so i went into northampton did the normal thing of manipulating some vulnerable people and um eventually weeks later you know i built up a legend of a bit of a trader in stolen property um bit of a shoplifter and eventually got this introduction to them and i was i was taken to this snooker club in the center of northampton where they were sort of holding court their sort of center of operations and i was taken shown into the gents toilets and uh, i was my mate who was introducing me was there looking terrified and this hooded figure came in and he went into the you know quite large area of gents toilets into the cubicle stood on the toilet, closed the door, looked over the top and said, what's this? So he was looking down at me. And as soon as he said that, the door burst open again and these four more hooded figures came in and they started walking around me. And as I was getting interrogated by the one in the cubicle, he was interrogating me and my mate, you know, how long we'd known each other, why, why were we there, all, all that kind of stuff. But while he was asking his questions, these four hooded figures as they walked around me would be like headbutting me on the ear, on the side of the head or one would push me slightly, and then I'd get a punch in the rib on the other side to be jostled back. And it was getting, you know, it was painful. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the sense of impending extreme violence was was incredible. I, I just became convinced I wasn't going to get out of there in one piece. But certainly I knew the reputation of them. Anyway, just as I was resigning myself to impend impending extreme pain, then he, he said, all right, then, what do you want? And the moment he said that, they just left in single file. They went. So I said to him, well, I've one and one, please. So he gave me a, a 0.4 of heroin, a 0.4 of crack, and I gave him 40 quid. We exchanged phone numbers. And that was the most important part of the operation, really, because we connected and he actually put me into his phone number as, 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 my, as my name. So 
then I spent the next few months of gathering evidence of conspiracy against the, the six main gangsters, the six members of the Burger Bar Boys who were there, and 90 other people. So there's 96 people there was evidence against by the end of that operation seven, after seven months. And, you know, this was exciting to me because it was clear to me that I'd got evidence against every single person who was trading, every single person. There was no new names to get, no new faces, no new phone numbers to get. I've got everybody. So I thought this is going to have a huge impact, huge. So there was hundreds of cops involved in that, cops from five different counties, massive amounts of arrests, extraordinary. Um, and at the end of that, A couple of weeks after the dust had settled, I spoke to the intel guy who was um, keeping his ear to the ground as to the impact of the operation. And he told me a couple of weeks afterwards, he says, yep, we managed to interrupt the drug supply in Northampton for a full two hours. Two hours. You know, seven months of work. I was convinced I was going to die on multiple occasions. All, the, all that effort and all those cops for the sake of interrupting it for two hours. Now. I don't know for certain that it's the infamous rivals of the, of the Burger Bar Boys, the Johnson crew, which took up that opportunity in that marketplace. But you can picture the scene, can't you? They're all sat round having a smoke and someone tells someone puts the call in and they say, wow, come on, boys, put the call in, buy a load more gear because we're going to make a fortune. Look what the police have done for us. And they'd be jubilant. They'd be partying about it. And that's and that's the thing. We, you know, cops are really good at catching dealers, but they never, ever reduce the size of the market. For every dealer you catch, you just create an opportunity for another. And where there are opportunities created, there are always more young men sucked into that world. So you perpetuate a never-ending cycle of violence, the corruption of our youth, the exploitation of our youth, for every, for every gangster you arrest, it's sucking more people into that business. And until we take control of that marketplace, that's never going to end. Yeah, I mean, you also see a lot of people who are reformed gang members coming back and trying to work actively into that market of saying, you know, stop. These are the mistakes that, we, that we've made and trying to get people out of there. But it's just the sheer attraction of money and power is one of the, which is what, you know, it's in every gangster film that you see that it never really ends well. No, exactly. And of course, you know, there are former gang members who do good work in, you know, going engaging with schools and youth groups and things like that. And they, you know, I don't want to knock what they do. But if it's not the kid they've persuaded away from it, it's someone else. So they are very limited as to what they can actually achieve for our communities and our society. Very limited because market forces are driving this market forces. There's money to be made there that cannot be made that cannot be made with so little risk in any other way. It can't. There isn't other options. And, then, and you know, organised crime have always exploited poverty and inequality, so they're aggravating factors. But it's not just poverty and inequality. It's the opportunities created by that illicit marketplace. So go, um, going back to when you were sort of more undercover as well, did you ever have an, um, a scenario where you were forced by somebody to take drugs on the spot? 
Yeah, I mean, I've had cannabis a few times, but that's just cannabis. That doesn't particularly, you know, that's just, you know, mm. whatever. Um, <laughs> but um, I did a job where I made a really big mistake, really big mistake. It was a long-term infiltration into this pub uh, in the in a village in, in Leicestershire where organised crime groups from Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire and Leicestershire were meeting. And the main target for the whole operation, he was an antiques burglar, uh, massive organized car thief heading a gang of car thieves and to get to know these people i'd made the massive mistake of making myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamines and i am clearly not a connoisseur of amphetamines <laughs> uh, but one day he brought me this um he brought me this gift he says hey you i've got a present for you and he held up this little sealy bag with this pink toxic looking goo in it and you can, you know, you the sm- it smelled like the the urine from a glue sniffing cat. Oh. If you can sort of get a sense of that, you know, it's that sort of toxic amphetamine type smell if you've not smelt it. And I knew it was strong, but he picked up on a momentary reticence on my face. It must have just been a glance. And I picked up on his suspicion, which was just a glance. And I knew I had to throw cold water onto that fire of suspicion instantly. I knew that. I knew I was in problems if I didn't. So I had to show enthusiasm straight away, which I did. So I said, oh, great. You know, I'm dip my finger in, add a little bit. And he says, no, no, no. With your tolerance, you'll need more than that. So oh, I'm thinking, yeah. oh, great. You know, not having any tolerance. So I picked my finger in and got some more and I could almost feel the mouth ulcers forming in my, in my mouth. And you know, it hit my stomach and I got a sort of warm glow and, you know, in no time at all, I was absolutely out of it. Now, for somebody who hasn't got any tolerance, and it was a huge amount of amphetamine because at the time your average amphetamine was 5% pure, this was 40% pure. Uh, so proper, proper base, base amphetamine. And I'd had a, more, than a, more than a comfortable dose. So I knew I wasn't going to overdose. I knew enough about it. It's not that relatively dangerous with the quantity, but... I was not going to have a nice time. This was uncomfortable. This was um, anxiety-inducing, should we put it that way? Mm-hmm. So, so I had to be driven home. I wasn't fit to do anything. Um, and I didn't, I didn't sleep at all for two nights. I didn't sleep properly for the third night. So I didn't sleep for a long time. But I'll tell you what, my house has never been so tidy. <laughs> but not an experience I'd want to repeat. Did you get to the stage where you had to, where you were taking apart electrical items? I was looking at new things to tidy and clean, but you know, I, I had, I remember on the way home, uh, thinking, oh, I've got eight cans of beer in the fridge, that'll take the edge off, that'll help. And as I finished the eighth can, and I felt no different at all, like no different, it didn't help. It's like I'd not had any any alcohol at all. Didn't help. I, I I remember one bit where you where you, some you were there was a scenario where you said that you almost had to inject into your groin in in a car was and then you did you end up putting it in into the car seat? Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I was again. It was a dealer in the car who was suspicious. So I basically had my, I had my kit to to cook up. So I I put a little bit of the heroin in the spoon little bit of citric, I had some citric powder, some water, I had in a little vial, poured it onto the spoon, heated it up with my clipper lighter, went through a filter in, took it up through the filter, 
waited for it to cool down a bit, you know, tapped it up, dropped my trousers as if to go into my groin and went into the car seat. It, you know, it looked right. And so you had enough experience then hanging around with with the uh, with clients then to basically kind of do the acting and the effects of it as well. How did you how did you then know of like, oh, I can kind of get myself out of this scenario? Was it when you you were constantly kind of reassessing the environment around? Yeah, I mean, I practiced cooking up just just in case I ever had to. Um... Uh, but I wasn't expecting to have to, but I was just sensitive to the suspicion of this particular guy. And I knew how to, that was just the best way of offsetting that. And I didn't have to act anything. I just acted like I didn't change at all. Because, you know, in my experience, when I've seen most people inject heroin, they don't change in the slightest. Yeah. It's actually very rare that you see a, a gouge, really. Uh, and by gouge, people don't know the word gouge. I mean, a, a strong sedating effect from heroin it's quite rare to see it uh, from from very pro- problematic um heroin consumers so you know you you talked quite heavily in terms of the um you know your your work then what was the kind of effect of your own private life were you ever scared in terms of repercussions to yourself or family even now because of some of the work that you've done i mean i had to manage it at the time you know i, I tried to arrange my days off so I could go home and you know a lot of the time I'd still manage to take my kids swimming on a Sunday morning even though I've been <laughs> buying crack from gangsters two days before so it was it was a strange dual existence that's for sure um, and certainly taxing on one's mental health but I mean nowadays no I, I, I don't consider myself at risk and that's a question that many journalists ask me you know surely you used to give ev- I mean I used to give evidence behind a screen using my pseudonym you know I was a, it was all very hyper secret um for my safety but that was because i was that was before i gave evidence now now i've finished the job i don't feel at risk in the slightest so you know this is my real name i live in hereford come and get me if you want me but no one will because the violence in the marketplace is part of the business model they're not going to come after me because it's a huge risk of no gain what's to gain from it there's no financial benefit in coming after me these are business people the violence is designed into the trade. So I don't know. I genuinely don't feel at risk at all. So you, you got to the stage. I mean, you've written two books, uh, one in 2017, Good Cop, Bad War, and then uh, in 2019, Drug Wars. Um, I understand why you might want to do the kind of the first, your, your first book. Um, what, why, did, why did you want to do that? And then why did you compel to write the second one? Well, the first one's a memoir, um, and that was an awkward thing for me to agree to do, actually, because I'm essentially an introvert. I get worn out from social contact, and I don't like the attention of the public. I don't. I don't like it. But it was the perfect tool, really, to be able to explain to the public and just get the truth out there, because and I feel duty-bound to do that. So there's a sense of duty which made me do that book. The second one was because in having these conversations from my experiences, I found that I also, we also needed evidence from our history as to, as to change over time. Because people don't have this understanding of change over time, that things are worse now than they were 20 years ago, and things have got worse because of policy. Now, I can say that, but to be able to actually explain it in tangible terms, we needed 
another book. We needed a book which explored British drug policy history and how things have changed and what the impact has been. So I teamed up with my good friend and co-writer, J.S. Raffaele, and we did Drug Wars. And the beginning of it is a little bit dry in terms of exploring the British system. Uh, and the British system basically is, is our history, our good history of drug policy in this country, uh, where we had a British approach to, to this, that as a British sensibility, we didn't see drug addiction as a criminal issue or a moral failing. We saw it as an unfortunate medical condition. And that was the British tradition. And as a result of that, British system meant that if you had a problem with heroin or cocaine, you went to a doctor and you were prescribed that drug so that you could do it safely. Pragmatic, simple. And as a result of the British system, we didn't have any organised crime involvement in the trade. We didn't have the problem. We didn't have a drug problem. But unfortunately, America became the superpower and they insisted, because this country still owed them money from the First World War, let alone the Second World War. Mm. And they insisted, for the sake of the percentage um, interest on those debts, that we follow their line on drug policy. And that's why the world has the punitive drug policy that, that we do. So at the end of the 1960s, when the British system ended, there was only 1,046 heroin consumers in the United Kingdom. 1,046, and the number was falling. 20 years later, less than 20 years later, we had 300,000 heroin consumers. The market was run by organised crime, which had been gifted to them by prohibition. And we had all of the associated violence and crime that has increased to this day. And there's a very clear cause and effect there, very clear. It's prohibition that caused that. And it's not a traditional British approach it's not so but I couldn't say that from my first from my memoir we had to dig into the history we had to prove we had to find those facts and figures and I love doing the book because I met such wonderful interesting people you know we covered um we covered the raves scene of the of the late 80s early 90s you know we interviewed people involved in that how how that changed things and you know we we interviewed gangsters in Liverpool to show how things changed in Liverpool over over three generations and and we also interviewed the most incredible former cop called Frank Matthews who exposed who was a whistleblower to corruption caused by our current drug policy caused by it he whistle blew on that and exposed it and ended up having to go into witness protection to protect his life from corrupt cops and so we interviewed him and exposed that and, you know, it, it, Drug Wars is a real snapshot into the reality and the history of, of the situation in the United Kingdom and, and the wider world, really. Did that play a part in why you knew uh, when you had to exit? What, what, what was the moment that you knew that, right, I'm, I'm out of this game full time? Well, I was resistant to the conclusions in my own head for too long. I was. These, I was getting so many doubts. I was seeing the harm I was causing and I was resistant to it. And that was causing me mental health problems. And eventually I had a breakdown. Um, I didn't know what was happening to me. Now I know it was um, the onset of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But it was many years later that that got diagnosed. But I had a breakdown and I realised that I felt like I was, in the, I was on the wrong side. I was 
working with the enemy. That's what it felt like because I was causing harm to people. And I'd stepped away from undercover work to try and change things within conventional policing. But there's no, I couldn't change things. I couldn't change things really. Um, so I needed that. To, I knew I needed to get out because that gave me the freedom to, to speak out. So I had to resign. And obviously that cost me a great deal. Um, you know, because, because I was way, I was before pension age and all that kind of thing. So, but I, I had to follow my conscience and I realized that a lot of my breakdown was about my conscience because, you know, through, through counseling and discussions with psychiatric nurses and two psychiatrists, I now understand that part of my illness, my PTSD, is something called moral injury. Now, moral injury was first identified in veterans returning from the Vietnam War in America, veterans who felt profoundly guilty about what they'd done. And that's an element of my PTSD. So to have PTSD, you have to have had near-death experiences. That's one of the defining characteristics of it. But mine is complicated by this profound, debilitating guilt, which comes from the moral injury, the fact that I have hurt other people. I have caused harm in an aggressive way to other people, um, that I decided to do that to other people. So it's complicated, but I'm not alone in this. You know, we have other members in Leap UK and in Leap around the world who suffer from PTSD and who have similar problems. So it's worth remembering that not only is our current drug our current drug laws causing great harm to vulnerable people who need help it's causing great harm to our communities by increasing crime and violence it's also causing harm to our police officers and so you you're part of um leap uk so that's the law enforcement action partnership can you just tell us a little bit about that and and why did you feel compelled to kind of be a part of their movement yeah i'm well the law enforcement action partnership is a global movement really um it started in the united states a group of cops got together um to, to try and stop the drug war they come to the same conclusions as me the same kind of experiences but that was in 2002 and it spread across the across the world so i'm now i'm on, I'm on the governing board for leap in the usa and i'm also um the chair of Leap UK and, and Leap Europe now, now as well. And we're growing rapidly across Europe. We've got a series of Leap Europe launch events coming. First one is January the 31st in Amsterdam, if it, if it <laughs> COVID goes ahead, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, but we've got a series of, of events, also Barcelona, uh, Copenhagen, Copenhagen, Helsinki, Paris, London as well. And I felt compelled to join them because, I mean, I, I feel duty-bound to explain the truth to the public because the public are being misinformed. And if I didn't use my experience and knowledge to try and change things, I would be failing in, in my duty. It's simple as that really. Um, so, but, but with this, it's not just me, there's a lot of us and growing numbers of us. And we're having a tangible influence on police thinking. Um, you know, now police in the UK are leading the drug law reform debate and actually taking action to change things. So, for example, police in Cleveland, uh, the Police and Crime Commissioner there uses police money to pay for heroin-assisted treatment, prescribing heroin to problematic consumers. 
like the British system used to be. Um, they're about to do that elsewhere in the country, including Scotland. But there's also police bringing in what we call diversion schemes. But there's particular good ones in Thames Valley. But they're happening all over the place. And those diversion schemes are essentially de facto decriminalisation. They're stopping the criminalisation of young people. Because, you know, today, like much of the time, we talk, we've talked about problematic drug use. But actually, the reality is that most drug use is non-problematic. In fact, 90% of drug use is non-problematic. And the drug use that is problematic is a sliding scale. And you'll know this, that mm. the sliding scale that some people need more intervention than others. And many people, actually, minimum, minimal intervention and guidance is that the way that they will find their way out of that. So we're actually talking about a genuine minority of people who have a problem with drugs. With that in mind, you have to, be, you have to conclude that for the vast majority of people, the greatest harm that can come to them for their drug consumption experimentation is that they get caught and what will happen to them in the criminal justice system. Because that's, that's a massive harm. It can affect their career opportunities. It can push them into criminality further. It can expose them to organised crime. If people get sent to prison, two out of five people who use heroin problematically in the UK first tried it in prison. So prison ain't a good idea for drug offences. Mm. Not a good. It's not. It's not a good idea. It's literally causing massive harm. So, you know, the police are leading this debate at the moment in the UK, and I'm pleased to say that we've had significant influence on that, and we are starting to have influence in other countries as well. Germany, for example have been very vocal calling for the legal for legally regulated cannabis market for adult consumption and lo and behold the new government coalition they've just announced that they're bringing it in and we've been calling that publicly in Germany for for, for years so you know we have influence and if anyone is out there listening who who thinks we can have influence in their communities we're always keen to do new speaking events or any way we can help spread the word yeah, definitely, and I'll I'll try and help uh, where I can in terms of trying getting that you know those conversations in, in in some of the right areas. I mean, so you know, with your experiences and where you're working with um, charities and organisations, do you feel sometimes it's always in their interest to kind of have these discussions, or uh, or do they kind of want to shut them down because with with certain with with treatment comes money, um, with other kind of conversations and policy, it might not. Is that some of the challenges that you're that you're facing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the political barriers are, of course, that the you know at the moment the government is staunchly and rabidly prohibitionist, and they invest money in drugs policing. They don't necessarily invest it in treatment services or harm reduction. But having said that, you know the new government strategy on drugs does suggest there's going to be a massive increase, well, reasonable increase in drug treatment services. But unfortunately, they they haven't brought in. The other things recommended in the Black Report, which was heroin-assisted treatment uh, and drug consumption rooms or overdose prevention sites. So, you know, we've got political barriers all of the time. But the most important thing in our debate is the public opinion. And because like any social justice issue, and this is a social justice issue, um, change comes from social movements rather than political leadership for most social justice issues. And if you look back in history, you can compare it with um, it, 
civil rights movement in America, you know, the, the uh, racial equality, changes have come through social movements. We're not there yet, but that social movement is what drives change. It's the same for things like the death penalty in the UK or gender equality in pay or, or the ending of criminalising homosexuality. All of these things have come from social movements. So, yes, there are barriers. Yes, there are organisational, political barriers. But we always have to be public facing and, and try and get the public engaged because it's, it's the movement that will get us there. Are you worried that there's so many political distractions that are going that getting this on the political agenda is getting harder and harder? I know that you know the Dame Carol Black report had come out where it made the, the recommendations, but I, I always remember some of the biggest sort of stories were always always on the news and you know the injection of money. It was always positive kind of spin to be put on it, or even kind of inclusive of different of communities where you know people from different kind of backgrounds of um, engaging people from you know like let's say from my community. Uh, the Punjabi Sikh community. It's only been kind of in recent times where discussions of, of organisations actively trying to bring people in who are culturally sensitive as workers to engage in that. Um, do you think that's where the future may lie in trying to get this to over the line faster and get it on that agenda? Actually, yes, absolutely. Uh, because traditionally, one problem um, that the Drug Law Reform Activist Network has, not just in the UK, but around the world, is it looks very white, like really white. Mm. And, you know, you, you've got middle-class white people talking about the impact on, on ethnic minorities, which is, which is good, you know, we, we need to highlight those things, but it's not, not so much credibility <laughs> if we're all white, is it? Mm. So, you know, Transform have been doing some great work with an organisation in London called Black Socks uh, to highlight the, 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 stop and, the problems caused by stop and search by drug policy. And as probably most listeners to this will know, I hope you know, that the disproportionality in stop and search for drugs, well, stop and search anywhere across the board, but especially for drugs, is extraordinary. It's unfathomably un unjust. In London, for example, if, if, you're, if you're black, you are 10 times more likely to be stop searched for drugs than if you're white. And if you have an Asian background, it's, it's, it's not much different. It's the same in Birmingham. The people being targeted by drugs policing are not white people; it's minorities, and th this is this should be should be one of the main driving factors for change. It should be if if society was just, it should be the driving reason. Mm. And we need to know, we need to realise that racism is in the DNA of our drug policy. It's in its DNA. It was it's what it was designed for. It was never designed as a health intervention. It was never designed out of concern for people getting addicted. It was designed to persecute people who are different. And I'll back that up with some history for you. So the cocaine wasn't seen to be a problem in America until in 1919 and with the Jim Crow era, with the South, Southern states reeling from the fact that they're meant to treat black people equally, um, found new ways to persecute black people. And one way they could do that is to criminalise what they saw as their behaviour. So cocaine was criminalised so that they could persecute black people and put them in prison and then exploit them in prison. And there is newspaper footage which, which we refer to in drug wars, which really does show just how acute that, and aggressive 
that was. Cannabis wasn't was seen as an everyday medicine until it was a way of persecuting Mexicans in the 19, early 1930s during the Great Depression, where Mexican people were seen to be stealing white jobs. So it was a way of persecuting Mexicans and, and, and arresting them, putting them in jail. Opium wasn't seen to be a problem until Chinese people, when they'd finished building the railways, were looking for other jobs, which were seen as white jobs. It was a way of persecuting immigrants. It's never been about health. It's always about persecuting those other people. Even alcohol prohibition was about persecuting Catholics because the influx of Catholic immigrants from Italy and Ireland were seen as a threat to the political power base of white Protestants. The Ku Klux Klan were the main, uh, main uh, uh, proponents of alcohol prohibition. And they put out these posters um, of basically Pope-hating posters that, you know, banning alcohol was a way of bashing Papists, Catholics. So it's always been about prejudice. They, they did that, and it, I always found it um, interesting when they did the when they uh, banned chat cat, which was pr prominent within the Somali Yemeni community, where there was very little evidence of what was going on, and then that was I think it was a class B. Then it, it was a it was a it's a minor stimulant used used culturally, no different from. I, I mean, I I tend to use too much tea, too much caffeine. And I, I overdo it sometimes and make myself feel ill. And, but I learn from that over time and I reduce it. You know, that's in my family context. <laughs> that's how I manage my, my caffeine addiction, my caffeine habit, so to speak. But I love caffeine. And just it was, yeah, that was just about that minority. It was persecuting and putting down that minority. It's not, it's not about anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's, this, it's, you know, I'm not saying that every single cop consciously goes out to to decide to pick on um someone from the from the Sikh community or someone someone from the afro-caribbean background i'm not saying that some of them do small minority do i'm not saying they do it consciously it's systematic mm -hmm. it's systematic it's it's like unconscious bias is loud and present in all of our society but when you're in a position of power, that bias is amplified. And when you are asked to deal with a law which essentially invites you to judge other people's behaviour, you are unconsciously looking who it is you perceive to be behaving that way. And that bias turns into systematic prejudice. And you can't argue with that because the numbers don't tell a lie. It's ten to one. These are dramatic, dramatic figures. Yeah. Um. So, <laughs> Neil, uh, it's been it's been fascinating, and and I get to a point. The 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 podcast is called the bandwagon, and um, I give an opportunity then to to the guests to basically say, is there something that there's a bandwagon you want to jump on or jump off, or just generally a point that you want to get off your chest? That I, I kind of open it out to you. Okay, well, yeah, I, I always take the, the opportunity to, to, to raise this. Um, thank you for this. Um, no lots of your listeners may think, okay, you've convinced me our drug laws are a nightmare, but what can I do? What can I do? Well, there is something you can do, a small thing. Many of you will have seen that the police are increasingly using social media to advertise what they do in terms of their drug busts. 
So you'll see it in various parts of Birmingham. The local cops have found a new cannabis factory or they've arrested someone with this much cocaine or they've done this seizure. And they celebrate this as a victory, something which they even sometimes say daft things like this will make our community safer, which it won't because there's no evidence that it will. And there's actually evidence that it will do the opposite. So they are misinforming the public. So as a way to respond to that, uh, Leap, we partnered with the wonderful organization called Anyone's Child. And we made this video, which is a direct challenge to that narrative. And we made it so this video is shareable and it's basically to be used to be posted politely because if you politely ask the police to watch it, they may, you know, we know that they watch, we know that they're watching it because they respond back to us. If it's politely posted in the comments section in social media underneath the police posts or the National Crime Agency posts or wherever it is, post this video that challenges their narrative and they watch it and it's having an influence. And sometimes it's got to the point where you know, you'll see a social media post and, it's, and this, this video has been posted like three times and repetition is good. It means that they're more likely to watch it and it's having an influence on police thinking. So that's a tangible, very simple thing that people can do. So if I send you that video, the link to that video, if you'd be so kind as to I'll share it. it on the, I'll stick it on the description. <laughs> Brilliant. That's great. That's great. Neil, I really appreciate this. And I know, it, you know, it takes a lot out of you in terms of, you know, uh, having these discussions. I think it's, it's really, really important. And um, uh, even a, a, the, the small kind of people who are interested in into uh, who kind of follow some of the conversation I do will really appreciate this. I mean, it's, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm learning all the time, uh, you know, it, it, it is just one of those experiences of when I ever hear you speaking before, you know, you just, I just sit back and listen. So I really appreciate it for you taking your time out with me today. No problem. I very much appreciate you inviting me. And it was really good chatting with you. Thanks, Neil. Thanks. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.